Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 46, Monsters and Heroes. In every culture's mythology, apart from their gods, a distinguished place is saved for their heroes, whose accomplishments adorn their tales, their traditions, their poetry, and their literature. In their quest to touch whatever their powers do not allow them to realize, mankind has created figures that achieve the impossible and adorn them with supernatural and superhuman talents. These special mortals, who are endowed with beauty, physical strength, and special attributes, were called heroes by the Hellenes, a term first used in the poems of Homer. In myths, the heroes were usually of divine descent, from the union of a god or a goddess, with a mortal man or woman, respectively. According to their contribution to humanity, after their death, they became demigods, who, as they are presented by Hesiod, live eternally, in great happiness, away from sufferings. Greek myth is dominated by the lives and accomplishments of these heroes. Every region in the Greek world created its own heroic figures and accounted for their numerous adventures and labors. At first, these labors were stories told orally through the generations until they became fairy tales and tradition. These local tales were collected in Ionia and comprised a wondrous treasure, becoming the first source of topics for the epic poets, who either praised each of the heroes' deeds separately or place the heroes in a pan-Hellenic accomplishment, a war, or an expedition. Initially, the heroes in the tales had a mostly passive role, as superior powers, such as gods, directed their actions. While they provided them with magical devices and countless pieces of advice, in order to succeed in performing their feat. In addition, the heroes were assisted by certain animals, so that they could overcome the difficulties that they encountered. But when the poets in Ionia received the legacy of the tales and oral narrations, they organized this legacy, reshaping it from a fairy tale and tradition, and enriching it with heroes that demonstrate intellect, strength, and beauty, but mainly initiative. The Homeric hero acts as a responsible individual. While he accepts the protection from divine powers, this protection does not make him dependent, but an individual free to decide upon his actions. What particularly characterizes the Greek heroic world is the fact that the hero's attributes are purely human. Bravery, self-sacrifice, pride, loyalty to friendship and family bonds, and humanity in general are the main traits of each of the heroes in Greek myth. These benevolent heroes, who with bravery, destroyed mischievous elements, and thus helping their country, or even instituted their country's social institutions, as well as various devices contributing to the people, improving their lives and becoming civilized, were frequently supported and guided by the gods themselves. However, it is they who decided on what to do. Nevertheless, there also existed hubristic heroes who forgot that they were mortals and dominated by arrogance. They believed that they were gods themselves. And so the gods then became avengers, and the punishment for all of those was so severe that it resulted in their death or destruction. Being grateful for everything that their heroes had offered, the Greeks worshipped them. And this hero worship that they developed concerned not only the mythical heroes, but the heroes of the historical times as well. 
The many heroes of Greek myth oftentimes achieved their renown through the slaying of various beasts or monsters that terrorized the local populace. All of the Greek monsters were naturally descendants of Gaia. Her relations with Oranos produced the Titans, Cyclops, and Hecatonchires, as we mentioned in episode 2. But she also produced numerous primordial sea deities by her union with Pontus, some of those being Nereus, Cato, and Phorcus. And then, Cato and Phorcus made it and produced Echidna, a half-woman, half-snake creature. The two gorgons, women with snaky hair, fangs, and scaly skin, and a look that turns mortals to stone. The three Gryi, or perpetually old women who shared one eye and one tooth together. And finally, Ladon, the serpent that guards the golden apples in the Garden of the Hesperides. Typhon was a monstrous giant and the most deadly creature of Greek myth. He was a son of Gaia, fathered by Tartarus. Like Echidna, Typhon was half-human and half-snake, but instead of a human head, a hundred dragon heads erupted from his neck and shoulders that emitted fire in every direction. He challenged Zeus for rule of the cosmos. But Zeus, with his thunderbolts, overcame Typhon, and he was either locked up in Tartarus or buried under the volcanic region that stretched from Mount Etna in Sicily to Mount Vesuvius in central Italy and the Greeks believed that he was the cause of their volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. Before this occurred, though, Typhon coupled with Echidna. These two were the progenitors of many of the serpent monsters in Greek myth. There was Orthrus, the two-headed dog with a snake-headed tail who guarded the cattle of Geryon, Cerberus, the three-headed dog with a snake-headed tail who guarded the gates of Hades, the Lernian Hydra, the many-headed serpent, who when one of its heads was cut off, grew two in its place, the Colchian dragon, the serpent that guarded the golden fleece, and the Hemera, a fire-breathing beast that was part lion, part goat, and had a snake-headed tail. Orthrus, mating with his sister, the Hemera, produced the Sphinx, a monster with the head of a woman and the body of a winged lion, and the Nemean lion whose fur was impenetrable. There are, of course, other creatures and monsters which were either the children of divine beings, were divinely created, or were created as the result of divine punishment, such as the Sirens, Scylla, Charybdis, the Minotaur, Centaurs, Polyphemus, and the Stymphalian birds, just to name a few. Genealogically speaking, In order to discuss the earliest slayers of monsters, we need to start fairly early on, sometime after the Gigantomachy. As we discussed in episode 2, when Zeus fell in love with the beautiful Io, an Argive princess, Hera, well known for her jealousy, turned her into a cow, and then sent a gadfly to drive her to the ends of the world. As a cow, Io wandered on the mountains and the plains of Asia for a very long time before she reached Egypt. There, she finally transformed back into a human and gave birth to a son of Zeus, named Epaphus. He became the king of what would become Egypt and married Memphis, a daughter of Nilus, who was the personification of the Nile River itself. Nilus was a son of Oceanus, the titan god of the sea. Epaphus and Memphis had a daughter, named Libya, who Poseidon impregnated to produce Belus and Agenor 
Belus surpassed his father as the king of Egypt, while Agenor became the king of Tyre. For the moment, we are going to turn our attention to Agenor's side of this genealogy. Agenor married another daughter of Nihilus, named Telephassa. They produced five children, Phoenix, Europa, Silex, Thassos, and Cadmus. Cadmus was to be known as the first Greek hero. When Zeus fell in love with his sister, Europa, and carried her off to Crete, their union ultimately produced the Cretan king Minos and his brothers Sarpedon and Radamanthus, as we discussed in episode 5. His father ordered him and two of his three other brothers to find her, with the stipulation that they weren't allowed to return unless they brought her back. The son who stayed home was Phoenix, and the region would become known as Phoenicia. Silex went to southern Asia Minor, named it Cilicia, and stayed there, while Thassos reached Greece and settled down on the island that would take his name. When Cadmus couldn't find his sister either, he decided to consult the oracle at Delphi. She told him to stop looking for Europa and instead follow a cow, with a half-moon on her flank. And wherever this special cow stopped and lied down exhausted, he should found a city and settle down there. So when he came across this special cow, he did as the oracle instructed. When the cow stopped, he founded the city that would later become known as Thebes, the Acropolis of which was named Cadmia in his honor. He decided to sacrifice the cow to Athena and sent some of his companions to fetch water from a nearby spring. However, the spring was guarded by a huge water serpent, who immediately slew Cadmus's companions. Cadmus in turn smashed the dragon's head with a rock, took the water, and then offered the sacrifice to Athena. Afterwards, under Athena's guidance, he sewed the teeth of the serpent into the ground, from which there sprouted armed men, called the Spartoi, which literally means sown. By throwing a stone amongst them, Cadmus caused chaos to ensue, and they fought between each other until only five survived. These five men assisted him to build the Cadmia, and would become the founders of the families of the first noble class of Thebes. The serpent had been sacred to Ares, so Cadmus had to serve him for a period of eight years in order to do penance. When his punishment ended in the ninth year, he became the king of the city and married Harmonia the daughter of Ares and Aphrodite. The wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia, renowned for its splendor and the first wedding celebrated on earth, was attended by all of the gods. The muses sang and the Karatai danced, while the couple received sumptuous gifts. Most exquisite among them was a necklace, fashioned by Hephaestus and commonly referred to as the Necklace of Harmonia, which brought misfortune to all who possessed it. After Hephaestus had discovered the infidelity of his wife Aphrodite with Ares, he vowed to avenge himself by cursing any lineage of children resulting from that affair. Well, that would be Harmonia. Her and Cadmus had two sons, Polydorus and Illyrius, and four daughters, Agave, Ateno, Eno, and Semele. The necklace allowed any woman wearing it to remain eternally young and beautiful, and naturally, it became a much-coveted object amongst the women of the House of Thebes throughout Greek myth. In particular, it would be worn by Semele, Dionysus' mother, and later Jocasta, Oedipus' mother-slash-wife. 
when tragic endings happened for both of them. Cadmus, in his old age, would abdicate the throne in favor of his grandson, Pentheus, and would live to see his family all overtaken by grievous misfortunes and his city by civil unrest, thanks to his spurned other grandson, Dionysus. But those are all stories for a future episode. Anyways, at an old age, with his family in ruins, Cadmus and Harmonia left Thebes in order to help the Ankelians, a tribe in northwestern Greece, subjugate the area around what would later be called Illyria, after which he and Harmonia ruled their country and had a son, named Illyrius, the eponym for the people who he ruled. Sometime later, Cadmus, who had grown deeply troubled by the ill fortune which had come to him, and which he believed was the result of him killing the serpent of Ares in his youth, he remarked that if the gods were so enamored with the life of a serpent, he might as well wish that life for himself, and so he asked the gods to change him into a serpent too. His request was granted, and both Cadmus and Harmonia were changed into serpents and lived like this, until Zeus sent them to dwell at the Elysian Fields, an afterlife realm separate from Hades that was reserved for mortals related to the gods. As we discussed in episode 9, Cadmus was credited by Herodotus with introducing the Phoenician alphabet to the Greeks, who then adapted it to form their Greek alphabet. However, this can't possibly be correct, because the earliest Greek inscriptions only match Phoenician letter form from the late 9th century BC, well after the believed date for the foundation of Thebes. Some modern scholars argue that Cadmus was originally an Autochthonous Boeotian hero, and that only in later times did the story of a Phoenician adventurer of that name develop, to whom was ascribed the introduction of the alphabet, the invention of agriculture, and working in bronze, and thus of civilization generally. The wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia is thus considered as a conceptual symbolic coupling of Eastern Phoenician learning with the Western Greek love of beauty. Now, let's turn our attention back to Belus, the king of Egypt. He also married another of Nihilus's daughters, named Akiro. They had twin sons, Danaeus and Egyptus. As you might have guessed, these two were the ancestors of the Danaeans and the Egyptians. They each ruled over Libya and Egypt respectively. Danaeus, though, left Libya to rule elsewhere, and in doing so, he arrived at the city of Argos. The Argived people welcomed him as their new ruler, because they had just seen a wolf come out of the woods and kill a bull near the city walls, and they took that as a portent. Danaeus produced fifty daughters, called the Danaids, while Egyptus produced fifty sons. The attempted marriage of these hundred cousins turned out to be a disaster and resulted in the death of ninety-eight out of the hundred. We will discuss this further when we cover Aeschylus' play, The Suppliants. Anyways, their surviving daughter, Hypernestra, and their surviving son, Lynceus, did in fact marry, and they began a dynasty of Argive kings, called the Danae dynasty, beginning with their son, Abbas. He married Akalia, and like his father, he too produced twins, Acrisius and Proetus. When Abbas died... He bequeathed his kingdom to his two sons, bidding them to rule alternately. But that was a pipe dream, as these two had quarreled from their earliest days, even in their mother's womb, 
A civil war soon followed. Proetus managed to get the upper hand early on, making himself the next king of Argos. He held the throne for about 17 years, but Acrisius, not one to stay defeated, eventually overthrew him. Proetus then fled to the court of Iobates, the king of Lycia, where he married his daughter, Svenoboea. In return, Iobates led an army to restore Proetus to his kingdom with armed force. After this war had gone on for a while, the kingdom was finally divided into two. Acrisius kept control over Argos and the western half, while he surrendered the eastern half of the Argolid to Proetus. At any rate, the two distrusted each other so that they constantly vied for supremacy and worried about the other's strength. In fact, on the far western front of his kingdom, Proetus founded Tyrants and employed the Cyclopes to build walls around the city using huge stones. And even today, the Cyclopean walls can be observed there. Acrisius married Eurydice, a daughter of Lacidaemon, the legendary founder of Sparta. Over time, though, Acrisius grew concerned because he only had a daughter named Danae but no male heir, meaning that Proetus and his line would be able to take his kingdom once he died. After consulting the Oracle of Delphi about the matter, he learned that not he, but Danae, would indeed have a son, and further that his grandson would bring about his demise. As many of these characters in myth tend to do, he tried to find a way to thwart his fate, as proclaimed by the Oracle. He built a bronze chamber, which he mostly submerged underground, with holes just big enough to slip in food and water. That way, he assumed, no man could ever reach her. But Zeus saw the girl, found her beautiful, and decided that he wanted her for himself. He descended upon her in a shower of golden rain, through the crack in the chamber, and impregnated her. As the time went by, Danae bore her child while continuing to live a miserable existence in the chamber. She managed to hide the baby from her father with the aid of a nurse. Eventually, the news got out as people heard the baby crying. Acrisius was understandably confused, not wanting to believe that she had given birth to a child of Zeus, as the rumors had indicated. He finally accepted the truth, and being fearful for his future, but unwilling to provoke the wrath of the gods by outright killing an offspring of Zeus, he decided to cast the two of them out of Argos. So he removed her from her chamber, built a wooden chest for her that looked something like a coffin, and nailed her and her child in it. He ordered his henchmen to toss the box into the boisterous sea. Essentially, he was burying his own daughter alive so that he could avoid the oracle's prediction. The gods determined that Danae should live, though, and the waves drifted her along into the Cyclades. Soon, a fisherman named Dictus pulled her out of the sea and took her to the island of Seraphos, where he allowed Danae and her baby, called Perseus, to live with him. Perseus grew fast and strong, exhibiting a strength and athleticism that far surpassed that of anyone on the island. The king of the island, Polydectes, had designs on Danae and wanted to marry her, but Perseus believed that the king was less than honorable, and so he thwarted his every effort. As a result, Polydectes decided that he needed to get rid of him, and so he plotted Perseus's ruin. While holding a banquet with his friends, and with Perseus invited as well, 
The king demanded that everyone present provided him with an outstanding horse so that he could give them as a gift for when he courted Hippodimea, the daughter of Onomaeus, king of Elis. That is, before Pelops came along. Well, Perseus was too poor to own a horse, so he told the king that he would give him whatever else that he would request in order to take the place of the horse. Polydectes then seized this opportunity by telling him to go and fetch the head of the Gorgon Medusa, and in the case he couldn't do so, he would take his mother to be his wife against her will. This, of course, was a seemingly impossible task, since Medusa, like the other two Gorgons, could turn people to stone with just one look. Even if Perseus somehow was able to cut off her head, the other Gorgons, immortal and winged as they were, would quickly pursue him, as they protected her, even though she was not originally their sister. In fact, she was the only mortal Gorgon, as she was originally a mortal woman. She had been a priestess of Athena, but she was raped by Poseidon in Athena's temple, and transformed into a Gorgon by the goddess in a fit of rage, for allowing herself to be raped, which thus desecrated her temple. In myth, women often took the blame and suffered for the sexual indiscretions of the gods. As Perseus sat on a rock at the far end of the island, pondering over his next action, he was found by Hermes, who told him that he and Athena would provide aid to him in getting the head of the Gorgon. Hermes advised Perseus that before he could find and behead Medusa, he first had to find the three old women, called the Graei, literally the Grey Ones, who would give him directions to the nymphs who kept watch over certain equipment he would need in order to approach Medusa. These Graei were elderly from birth and were so old and hideous that they shared among them one eye and one tooth. Their one task was to bar the road that led to the Gorgons. Under the advice of Athena, Perseus went to them, and as they passed it about, he stole their eye, not returning it until they gave him directions to the nymphs. When he arrived at the nymphs' location, he found that they were willing to give him the three crucial items needed for his mission. The cap of Hades, which could make him invisible, the winged sandals of Hermes, a purse called a kibisis for carrying the gorgon's head, and a sword made of adamantine steel. And so, Perseus, Hermes, and Athena were now ready to take on the Gorgons. Since the two gods already could fly, Perseus used his winged sandals to fly over the ocean to where the Gorgons had their abodes. When they arrived, they found them asleep. The Gorgons had hair of living snakes, boar tusks, and copper arms, and they bore golden wings. On the advice of Athena, Perseus used the reflection on his shield in order to back up to Medusa, and using the sword, he beheaded her. From the wound on Medusa's neck sprang forth Pegasus, a winged horse, and Chryseor, the eventual king of Iberia. He stuffed her head into the purse, without looking, then used his winged sandals and the cap of invisibility to escape the other two Gorgon sisters, who pursued after him, but could not see him. On the way, Perseus seems to have been flying over Africa, and the blood dripping from his purse turned into snakes as they hit the desert. Somewhere in Ethiopia, Perseus spied a strange scene. There, beneath him was a beautiful maiden, fastened to a large rock near the ocean, while her parents hid fearfully off to the side. 
He flew down, checked the woman out, and decided he wanted to marry her, and then went over to talk to her parents. As it turned out, the woman, named Adromeda, was waiting for a sea monster to come out of the sea in order to devour her, a payment demanded by Poseidon because her mother, Cassiopeia, had boasted that her daughter was more beautiful than the Nereids. Perseus asked her parents if he rescued her from the monster if they would let him marry her. The father, King Cepheus, gladly agreed, and so Perseus waited for the monster. When the monster, Cetus, emerged from the sea, a tremendous battle ensued, with Perseus darting in and out, stabbing it with his sword, until finally it curled up dead. But the parents of Andromeda forgot to mention that she was betrothed to someone else. When the rival showed up to their wedding with his band of hooligans, all hell broke loose. Perseus, however, had a secret weapon. At just the right moment, he whipped out Medusa's head, showed it to them, and turned them all into stone. Another version has it that he didn't kill the parents, as Andromeda bore a son named Persis, whom they left behind to be raised by the grandparents. Persis was believed to be the ancestor of the Persians. Anyways, afterwards, Perseus and Andromeda flew back to Seraphis to show Polydectes the head of Medusa. Perseus found him harassing his mother, who had taken refuge at the altar of a god, so he marched into the king's palace, pulled out the head of Medusa again, and stared it directly at the king. Everyone in the king's court was turned to stone, and the ancients believed this was why the island to this day is full of rocks. Perseus then made Dictus the new king of Seraphos. Afterwards, Perseus gave the sandals, the kibisus, and the helmet back to Hermes, and then Medusa's head to Athena. The goddess placed the gorgon head in the center of her shield. The gorgon has snakes for hair and a perpetual scream on her face, and she makes men turn into stone by looking at her. Athena makes the negative female energy, represented by the gorgon, helpful to a city by putting the head of Medusa on her shield, and uses it in battle as a weapon in order to protect cities. Perseus then returned to Argos to find his grandfather Acrisius. When Acrisius learned that Perseus was coming, he fled north to Thessaly, assuming that some harm would come to him from Perseus. And so his grandson settled down as the new king of Argos. At some point, the king of Thessaly was holding some athletic games, which Perseus attended in order to participate. While throwing the discus, he slipped, and the discus flew into the crowd, hitting an old man in the head. Not surprisingly, given the oracle, this old man was Acrisius. The oracle was thus fulfilled after all, since now Perseus had killed his own grandfather, although by accident. When Perseus returned to Argos, he was so ashamed of what had happened that he wished to trade his city for that of Tyrants. His cousin, Megapenthes, the son of Proetus and current king of Tyrants after his father had died, agreed to this. Perseus later found it nearby Mycenae. He and Andromeda lived and ruled there for many years until their deaths, when Athena turned them into a constellation. Meanwhile, there is another family tree that we need to discuss that eventually has a connection with Proetus and Tyrants. The starting point for this will be Sisyphus, a son of Aeolus, making him the grandson of Helene and the great-grandson of Deucalion. He became the founder and first king of Corinth. He promoted navigation and commerce, but was avaricious and deceitful. 
He also killed travelers and guests, a violation of Exenia, which fell under Zeus's domain. He took pleasure in these killings because they allowed him to maintain his iron-fisted rule. From Homer onwards, Sisyphus was famed as the craftiest of men. One day, Sisyphus, for whatever reason, decided that it was a great idea to tell Hera about one of the numerous affairs of Zeus. Angry at this, Zeus ordered the personification of death, Thanatos, to bring him to the underworld and chain him up. But Sisyphus slyly asked Thanatos to demonstrate how the chains worked. He agreed, and as he was doing so, Sisyphus seized the opportunity to tie Thanatos up instead, and so death itself was bound up. The result was that people on earth stopped dying. This caused an uproar, especially for Ares, who was annoyed that his battles had lost their fun because his opponents couldn't die, and so he intervened. Thanatos was untied, and Sisyphus once again was taken to the underworld. But before he went, he ordered his wife not to bury his body. His wife was Merope, a daughter of Atlas, and the youngest of the seven Pleiades, being the only one to mate with a mortal. Anyways, when Sisyphus arrived in the underworld, he found himself stuck on the shores of the river Styx, because only those whose bodies had been buried could enter. So he complained to Persephone, the queen of the underworld, of his wife's disrespect for him, and he asked to return to life, just so he can punish his wife's impiety. But he lied, and he ended up staying on earth until he died from natural causes. And so, when he finally died, and his shade returned to the underworld, he was punished very severely for his previous trickery. He was made to roll a huge boulder up a steep hill, and once it was at the top, the rock would roll back over him to the bottom. He was then forced to start over again. This is similar to the way that Sisyphus reversed, or turned the table on people, when he was alive. The maddening nature of his punishment, condemned to an eternity of useless efforts and unending frustration, was a result of his hubristic belief that his cleverness surpassed even that of Zeus himself. Sisyphus was succeeded to the throne of Corinth by his son Glaucus. The main myth about his life involves his violent death as the result of his horsemanship at the funeral games in honor of Peleus, the king of Iolcus, who was brutally killed by the sorceress Medea after Jason returned from collecting the Golden Fleece. We will discuss this myth when we talk about Euripides' play Medea. Anyways, there are two main traditions concerning the death of Glaucus at these games. In one, he feeds his mares on human flesh in order to make them fierce in battle. But at the games, he had ran out of human flesh to feed them, and so they turned on their master and devoured him instead. In the other account, he offended Aphrodite either by keeping his mares from mating in order to preserve their speed, or by scorning her in general. The goddess then brought retribution upon him through his horses. He died in a chariot accident during the race. As an aside, the victor of this race was Iolaus, the nephew and lover of Heracles. Before his death, though, Glaucus had married Euronome, the daughter of Nyssus, king of Megara, and they had a son named Bellerophon. However, some sources say that Poseidon was his real father, because Zeus probably still angry about the whole Sisyphus thing, had declared that Glaucus would sire no children. Regardless, Bellerophon was a young man of exquisite beauty and bravery, 
but he was exiled from Corinth by Glaucus before his death because of an accidental murder. In atonement for his crime, he was ordered to be a suppliant of Proetus, the king of Tyrants and the uncle of Perseus. However, Proetus' wife had fell in love with him, and because he repulsed her advances, she told her husband that he had attempted to rape her. Proetus believed his wife, but he dared not to murder his guest and thus violate the laws of hospitality, so he sent Bellerophon away to the court of his father-in-law, Iobates, the king of Lycia. He was sent to deliver a sealed message in a folded tablet. Unbeknownst to Bellerophon, the letter had a message for Iobates to kill him. When he arrived, Iobates accommodated Bellerophon for nine days, holding feasts in his honor. On the tenth day, he asked him the purpose of his visit, and that's when Bellerophon finally handed him Proetus's letter. Once he read it, he also feared the wrath of the Furies if he murdered a guest, so he decided to send him on what turned out to be three missions that he deemed so impossible to carry out that he would surely lose his life in the process. First, he asked him to kill the Himera a monster bearing a lion's head, a goat's body, and a snake's tail. This creature lived in Caria and ravaged the countryside with its fiery breath. On his way, Bellerophon encountered the seer Polyidos, who gave him advice about his upcoming mission. He told him that he would need the services of Pegasus, the winged stallion that was born from the blood of the severed head of the Gorgon Medusa. As Pegasus was very fierce, nobody was able to yet capture him, but Polyidus advised Bellerophon to sleep in the temple of Athena and pray for her assistance. And so he spent the night by the goddess's altar, and in a dream, Athena appeared, setting a golden bridle beside him, and she advised him to show it to his father Poseidon, to whom he would have to sacrifice a white bull. When he awoke, he saw the golden bridle lying at his side. And so he honored both Athena and Poseidon, and then returned to find Polyidus, who told him that he would find Pegasus at Corinth. So he rushed back to his home city, where he in fact found Pegasus drinking water at the Pryrene Spring. He approached the horse stealthily and slipped the bridle over Pegasus's head, and the horse immediately stood calm and ready to be mounted. Then, Pegasus and Bellerophon flew in the sky towards where the Himera dwelled. When he arrived in Lycia and located the Himera, Bellerophon was not able to harm the monster, even while riding on Pegasus. As he felt the heat of the breath that the Himera expelled, he was struck with an idea. He got a large block of lead and mounted it on his spear. Then he flew head-on towards the Himera, holding out the spear as far as he could. Before he broke off his attack, he managed to lodge the block of lead inside the Himera's throat. The beast's fire breath melted the lead and blocked its air passage. The Himera thus suffocated, and Bellerophon returned victorious to King Iobates. He was unwilling to credit his story, though, so a series of daunting further quests ensued. Then, Iobates sent him to fight the Solimai, a warlike people in Lycia, holding the belief that the Himera was a fluke and that these people would surely kill him. However, Bellerophon slew them all, and when he returned safe and sound, Iobates once again sent him on another mission. This time, he sent him to confront the Amazons on an expedition in their land. Needless to say, he won this battle too. He did so by dropping boulders on them from his winged horse. Iobates, 
still in disbelief, then sent him against some carrion pirates. But on the way, he fell into an ambush by the bravest of the Lycians, under the assassination orders of Iabates. After he slew all of the Lycians, though, he called upon Poseidon, who caused floods, to follow wherever Bellerophon went, as he returned victoriously to the palace. At the sight of this, Iabates finally had to acknowledge Bellerophon's divine origin, and so he relented, and decided to keep him by his side in Lycia, offering him his daughter, Philono, in marriage. They would have three children, one of which, Laodamia, mingled with Zeus and produced Sarpedon, a future king of Lycia that fought for the Trojans in the Trojan War. When Iobates died, he left Bellerophon his entire kingdom, where he ruled justly and was praised with the glory of a hero. According to one tradition, Bellerophon later returned to Tyrants and took vengeance on Svenaboea, his wife's sister, and the woman who had made false rape accusations. He took her for a ride on Pegasus and threw her to the ground to her death. Another tradition states that after Bellerophon married her sister and later became king of Lycia, Svenoboea feared that her allegations would be exposed as false, and fearing public denouncement, she committed suicide. Regardless, divine judgment was added to this tragic end, since Proetus and Svenoboea's three daughters were overcome with madness by Dionysus, along with the rest of the Argive women. The result was that they took to ranging over the mountains as maenads and assaulted any travelers. They were eventually cured by a soothsayer named Melampus. However, all was far from good for Bellerophon. As his fame grew, so too did his hubris. He became very arrogant, believing that he was perfect, and so he wanted to go up to Mount Olympus on Pegasus to be a table made of the gods, much like his grandfather Sisyphus had been. However, this presumption angered Zeus, so as Bellerophon was riding Pegasus to ascend Mount Olympus, he sent a gadfly to sting the horse, causing Bellerophon to fall all the way back to Earth. Pegasus, though, completed the flight, and Zeus used him as a pack horse for his thunderbolts. Bellerophon was then left to wander alone in Lycia, forever away from the gods and the people, as a blind cripple. Let us now turn our attention to the so-called Cursed House of Atreus. Its founder, Tantalus, was a ruler in Lydia and a son of Zeus. He was the father of Pelops and Niobe. He was favored by the gods, so much so that they invited him to Olympus to taste nectar and eat ambrosia with them. Spoiled by his great wealth, Tantalus forgot that he was a mortal, and so he stopped respecting the gods. And so at one time, when he invited the gods to one of his banquets, he wanted to test their omniscience. In preparation for the meal, he chopped up his own son Pelops and brought it out as a sort of casserole to the feast. None of the gods were taken in by the trick, except for Demeter, who was still brooding over the fact that her daughter Persephone was in the underworld. She ended up eating the shoulder of Pelops before the trick was exposed, and Tantalus was punished for his disrespect. In Tartarus, he was placed in a pool of water that constantly recedes when he tries to drink from it. Above him dangles a fruit tree, the branches of which also recede when he tries to eat from it, ever eluding his grasp. And so his hunger and thirst can never be quenched. Tantalus's punishment for his act is now a proverbial term for temptation without satisfaction, 
that being Tantalize. Hermes and Hephaestus then took the butchered Pelops, boiled his body parts together with a few herbs, and magically the child was restored. His missing shoulder, now in Demeter's belly, was replaced by an ivory one. Once revived, Pelops was even better than before, and Poseidon had given him a wondrous winged chariot, on which he could fly anywhere that he wished. So at one point, he traveled to Elis, near Olympia in southern Greece. There ruled a certain king, named Onimaeus, a son of Ares, who had a beautiful daughter, named Hippodimea. She was being wooed by many men throughout Greece. If you recall, we mentioned this while talking about Polydectes and Perseus. But Onimaeus had been given an oracle that he would be killed by his own son-in-law, so he devised a means to put this off by stipulating that she could only be wed to someone who could best him in a chariot race. Onimaeus further stipulated that all challengers who lost were to be executed. Also, the king's chariot horses were a present from the god Poseidon and were therefore supernaturally fast. Furthermore, even if a suitor did manage to get in front of him, he would spear them in the back, drag them from the chariot, and cut off their heads. So basically, if you raced him, you were going to get your head decapitated and he was going to nail it to the palace door, which naturally kept a lot of people from competing. But when Pelops showed up and fell madly in love with Hippodamea, he decided to give it a try, undeterred, no doubt, by the show of decapitated heads. In order to work around this, the night before the race, Pelops convinced the king's charioteer, named Myrtilus, to help him. In return, he offered him half the kingdom of Onimaeus and the first night in bed with Hippodamea. Myrtilus, no doubt, loved Hippodamea too, and so he complied and replaced the bronze linchpins in the chariot with beeswax. The result was that on the next day, during the race, the friction caused the beeswax linchpins to melt, and thus the wheels popped off. Onimaeus himself was unprepared for this, and so he became tangled up in the reins and crashed, plunging to his death. Pelops was proclaimed the winner, and thus he could marry Hippodamea. And so, he rode on to win the race. Possibly regretting his offer, or just seizing an opportunity to ensure that he remained blameless, Pelops seized the charioteer and tossed him over a cliff to his death. As he fell, he invoked a powerful curse on Pelops and his lineage. The ancients believed strongly that a curse uttered by a dying person had special efficacy. After the murder, Pelops organized chariot races in honor of Onimaeus in order to be purified of his death. He then married Hippodamea and assumed the kingship of Elis. With his new wife, he had at least 16 children, the majority of which entered into royal marriages, including the house of Perseus. And between them and their lineage, they came to dominate the entire peninsula, which would thus become known as the island of Pelops, or the Peloponnesus. Of particular note, are Chrysippus, Thyestes, and Atreus. He also took in a young Laius, the father of Oedipus. More on that in a future episode. Anyways, Chrysippus was his favorite, which ultimately led to the jealous Atreus and Thyestes killing him. Pelops then banished them altogether from the kingdom, and as a result, Hippodamae hung herself. This is where the story of Pelops comes to an end, in terms of the storyline. But he was venerated at Olympia, where his cult developed into the founding myth of the Olympic Games, which we discussed in episode 21, as the most important expression of unity, not only for the island of Pelops, 
but for all Hellenes. At the Sanctuary of Olympia, Chthonic nighttime libations were offered every Olympic Games to dark-faced Pelops in a sacrificial pit before they were offered in the following daylight to the sky god Zeus. Meanwhile, on the other side of the peninsula, Eurystheus, the king of Mycenae, who had sent Heracles on so many labors, died without an heir. He was killed while fighting with the Heraclidae, or the sons of Heracles. This gave the two sons of Pelops the opportunity to enforce their power in the Argolid. An oracle said that a son of Pelops, either Atreus or Thyestes, should have the throne of Mycenae. Both wanted to rule there, though, so they had to find some resolution. It was agreed that whoever of the two could produce the golden fleece of a sacred lamb, a seemingly impossible task, could have the throne. Well, as it turned out, Atreus had such a golden lamb at his disposal which he had hidden in a locked trunk, and hadn't told anyone about it except for his wife, Aerope. However, little did he know that Aerope was having an affair with his brother Thyestes, and so she had already given the fleece to him. Thyestes was able to produce the fleece, much to the shock and bewilderment of Atreus. But Atreus would not give up so easily. He predicted that the sun would rise in the west on the next day, as a sign from the gods that he should rule Mycenae. And so the next day, when the sun did rise in the west, everyone was forced to admit that this was a powerful sign in favor of Atreus. Thus, Atreus began to rule over Mycenae, but the solution to the puzzle of the Golden Fleece kept bothering him. He finally realized that Thyestes must have been canoodling with his wife after all, and so he devised a plan of revenge. He invited the now-exiled Thyestes back to Mycenae on the pretense of reconciliation. Meanwhile, he took Thyestes' two children, chopped them up, and made a stew out of them. So when Thyestes came for dinner, he was fed his own sons. While poking around in the stew, he came across some recognizable parts of one of his children. After choking and gagging, he ran off cursing Atreus and swearing that he would one day get revenge. His revenge, though, would be complicated. He went to the Delphic Oracle in order to seek advice, but she told him that he must find his long-lost daughter, Pelopia, and make love to her. So Thyestes obediently set out to find his daughter. But one night during his journey, while camping out under the stars, he came across a young girl. In his desperation for entertainment, he attacked her, dragged her into the bushes, and raped her. In doing so, he left his sword behind by accident, which she retained in her possession. Little did he know, though, that the young girl that he had just raped was indeed Pelopia, and she became pregnant with their son, Aegisthus. But the story takes another turn. Shortly after her rape by the lusty Thyestes, Pelopia returned to the court of Atreus, who took her in and made love to her as well, with the result that he thought the eventual child was his own. At some point later, Atreus sent his two sons, Agamemnon and Menelaus, whom he had begotten with Aerope, his first wife, to Delphi to consult the oracle concerning Thyestes. Their uncle happened to be in Delphi, consulting the oracle about why he couldn't find his daughter, only if he knew the truth. And so the two brothers seized their uncle and drug him back to Mycenae in chains. Atreus sent his other son, Aegisthus, who was in reality Thyestes' son, to kill his uncle Thyestes, who was in reality his father, as a sign of loyalty and manhood. 
When Aegisthus was about to kill his father slash uncle, Thyestes recognized the sword as the one that he had lost in the bushes long ago. And putting everything together, he realized that Aegisthus was a son. The two then went to Pelopia to verify everything. She confirmed it all, but after realizing that she had intercourse and a child with her own father, she committed suicide. Aegisthus then murdered Atreus instead, creating a bitter hatred between Agamemnon and Menelaus on the one side and Aegisthus on the other. Thyestes thus assumed the kingship of Mycenae, and Agamemnon and Menelaus fled to the court of the Spartan king, Tyndarius, who accepted them as the royalty that they were. Tyndarius was a grandson of Perseus. He had a brother named Hippocoon, who had previously seized the throne of Sparta and exiled him, but he was reinstated by Heracles, who also was a grandson of Perseus. Heracles then killed Hippocoon and his sons. Tyndarius' other brother was Acarius, the father of Penelope. Tyndarius had a beautiful wife named Leda, who of course caught the eye of Zeus. So one day, when she was bathing in the water of the Rotus River, he transformed himself into a swan. Hermes, being his sidekick, transformed himself into an eagle and chased after the swan Zeus. Pretending to be scared, Zeus runs into Leda and seeks shelter in her bosom. Eventually, and don't ask me how, Zeus the swan has sex with Leda the human. Later that night, Leda also makes love with her human husband, Tyndarius. The result was that a few months later, Leda lays two eggs, each with a set of twins inside. From Zeus's egg comes Helen and Polydeusus, or Pollux. From the mortal egg of Tyndarius came Clytemnestra and Castor. Tyndarius also helped overthrow Thyestes and reinstated Agamemnon and Menelaus back in Mycenae. Thyestes fled into exile to the island of Cytheria, where he would eventually die. Changing gears, let's leave the Peloponnese for a bit and head northwards. Ixion was a son of Ares and the king of the Lapiths of Larissa, the most ancient tribe of Thessaly. He intended to marry Dia, a daughter of Dionysus, and promised his future father-in-law a very valuable present. However, he then decided not to pay the bride price, so Dionysus stole some of Ixion's horses in retaliation. Ixion concealed his resentment and invited his father-in-law to a feast at Larissa. When Dionysus arrived, Ixion pushed him to his death in a bed of flaming coals and wood. According to tradition, by killing his father-in-law, Ixion became the first man guilty of kinslain in Greek mythology. The neighboring kings of Thessaly were so offended by this act of treachery and violation of Exenia that they refused to perform the rituals that would cleanse Ixion of his guilt. Thereafter, Ixion lived as an outlaw, shunned from society. However, Zeus took pity on Ixion and brought him to Olympus and introduced him at the table of the gods, an act that essentially purified him. Instead of being grateful, though, Ixion grew lustful for Hera, Zeus's wife, a further violation of Exenia. Zeus found out about his intentions and was in disbelief that Ixion would betray him in his sincere kindness, so he set up a trap. He made a cloud in the shape of Hera and placed it next to Ixion at one point while he was sleeping in a field. When Ixion awoke, he thought Hera was laying naked beside him, and so he began to rape her. Zeus was so angry when he saw that his suspicions were confirmed that he expelled Ixion from Mount Olympus and blasted him with a thunderbolt. 
Zeus then ordered Hermes to bind Ixion to a fiery wheel that would spin around the heavens nonstop. Later, it would be moved to Tartarus. The spinning of the wheel represents eternity, and the fire represents purification. From the bestial lust of Ixion and the false Hera cloud came Centauros. He was a deformed child who hunched over and found no friends amongst the other humans. The only place he felt like he belonged was on Mount Pelion. There, he roamed, lived, and made it with the Magnesian mares, producing the race of half-man, half-horse beasts, known as the centaurs. Meleager was the son of Althea and Oeneus, the king of Caledon and Aetolia, and the great-great-grandson of Aetolus. When he was a seven-day-old infant, the three Mori, or Fates, visited his house to predict his destiny. First, Clotho said that he would become a great hero. Second, Lachesis enumerated the accomplishments that he would perform. When it was Atropus's turn, she looked at a log burning in the hearth and said that Meleager would die when that log was consumed by fire. Upon overhearing this, Althea took the log from the hearth and hid it to save her son's life. Meleager grew into a brave young man. He took part in the Argonautic expedition and was glorified, along with the rest of the Argonauts, as a hero. At one point, during the summer, while Oeneus was offering the first grains of that harvest to the gods, he forgot to offer to Artemis, who was the patroness of his country. The goddess became enraged and sent a huge wild boar, known as the Caledonian boar, to terrorize the area. It ravaged the land, men and cattle, and rooted up the vines, preventing crops from being sown. It also forced the people to take refuge inside the city walls, where they began to starve. Oeneus sent messengers out to look for the best hunters in Greece, offering them the boar's pelt and tusks as a prize. Meleager would lead his relatives, along with many of the known heroes from all over Greece, in order to hunt and kill the huge boar. Some of the best-known heroes who responded to the call were Laertes, the king of Ithaca and the father of Odysseus, a great number of the Lapiths, including the son of Ixion and their current king, Pirithous, Admetus, the king of Pherae, Acastus, the king of Iolcus and a son of Peleus, Asclepius, a son of Apollo and the eventual god of medicine, Jason, the leader of the Argonauts, Peleus, the father of Achilles, Iolaus and Iphicles, the nephew and brother of Heracles, Theseus, the king of Athens, Telamon, the king of Salamis, the Dioscori brothers, Castor and Pollux, of Sparta, and Nestor, king of Pylos, among many others. The only woman to participate was Atalanta, known from the myths as the unbroken young woman. When she was born, her father, Iasus of Arcadia only wanted a son, so he abandoned her on the mountains of Arcadia, where she was nursed by a bear, until some herdsmen found and raised her. Having grown up in the wilderness, she became a fierce hunter, and learned to fight and hunt as a bear would, and grew to become unbeatable in a foot race and in wrestling and archery. She also took an oath of virginity to Artemis. When all of the heroes were assembled, they were accommodated by Oeneus for nine days. On the tenth day, though, they set out for the hunt. Some of them, however, objected to Atalanta participating with them. But Meleager, having fallen in love with her, despite being married, and since he was the leader of the venture, he imposed her participation on all of them. 
The struggle began, but it was hard, and a lot of the heroes were killed from the tusks of the boar, or by friendly fire. But finally, on the sixth day, Atalanta first made contact by throwing her spear into the animal's back. Maligar finished it off by spearing it in the abdomen. All of the hunters shared the meat of the boar, but Maligar, being the victor, took its hide as a prize and offered it to Atalanta since she had wounded the beast first and drew the first drop of blood. His action was seen as a great insult by his uncles, and so they took the hide from Atalanta, stating that it belonged to them since Maligar chose not to keep it for himself. Maligar got really angry, and a fight ensued, during which he killed his uncles. As soon as Althea found out about her brother's murder at the hands of her own son, in great grief, she remembered what the three Mori had said and the log that she had hidden. In an impulse, she threw the log back into the hearth. As soon as the log burnt completely, Maligar dropped dead, thus fulfilling the prophecy. Since the mythic event drew together numerous heroes, among whom were many who were venerated as progenitors of their local ruling houses, among all of the tribal groups of Hellenes into the classical times, the Caledonian boar hunt offered a natural subject in classical art, for it was reminiscent with the web of myth that gathered around its protagonists on other occasions, around their half-divine descent and their offspring. Like the Argonautic quest for the Golden Fleece, or the Trojan War that took place the following generation, the Caledonian boar hunt is one of the nodes in which much Greek myth comes together. Later, Atalanta was rediscovered by her father. He wanted her to be married, but after a warning from an oracle about getting married, Atalanta agreed to only marry if her suitors could outrun her in a foot race, which she thought was impossible. The stipulation was that those who tried and lost would be killed, and many young men died in their attempt, until Hippomenes came along. He had asked Aphrodite for help, and she gave him three golden apples in order to slow Atalanta down. The apples were irresistible, so every time Atalanta got ahead of him, Hippomenes rolled an apple off to the side, and she would run after it. With this method, Hippomenes won the foot race and came to marry Atalanta. Eventually they had a son, Parthenopaeus, who was one of the seven against Thebes. The warning from the oracle would later come to fruition, as Atalanta and Hippomenes would be later turned into lions after they made love together in one of Sibylles' temples. Although I'm not sure why, the belief at that time was that lions could not mate with their own species, only with leopards. And so Atalanta and Hippomenes would never be able to remain with one another. Anyways, thereafter they drew Sibylles' chariot. We will discuss Sibylle more in a future episode. As we mentioned, Pirithous was the son of Ixion to Dia, and he became the next king of the Lapiths. He married Hippodamia, at whose wedding occurred the famous battle of the Lapiths and the Centaurs, known as the Centauromachi. The Centaurs, who were technically kin to the Lapiths, were guests at the party, but they lacked self-control and became so inebriated from wine that they became wild and tried to abduct the women, including the bride. We have discussed this event numerous times as it was a popular motif in Greek art as the symbolic struggle of civilized humans against the forces of violence and wildness represented by the centaurs. Pirithous also was best friends with Theseus, king of Athens, who attended his wedding and fought on the side of the Lapiths. I'm not going to rehash the legends surrounding Theseus, though, as I did that in episodes 5 and 24, 
but I will discuss again briefly his relationship with Pirithous. At some point after the wedding, Hippodamia gave birth to Polypoetus, one of the Thessalian leaders on the Greek side during the Trojan War. Hippodamia, though, died shortly after Polypoetus' birth, so Pirithous and Theseus, troublemakers as they were, pledged to carry off two daughters of Zeus as their new wives. Theseus chose the most desirable, Helen of Sparta. During the time that Helen was taken from society with other young girls in order to be prepared for marriage, she went to the sacred Therapne Grove. There, she outstripped everyone in beauty, swiftness, and so forth at Browron in her rites of passage, so she became the most desirable woman when she returned home. Of course, Theseus would have heard about this, as Browron is right there in Attica. So together with Pirithous, they kidnapped her when she was just 13 years of age, deciding to hold on to her until she was old enough to marry. Pirithous, though, chose a more dangerous prize that being Persephone, the queen of the underworld. They left Helen under the watch of Theseus' mother, Aethra, and traveled to the underworld domain of Persephone and her husband Hades. However, Helen was eventually rescued from Athens by her two brothers, Castor and Pollux. Her reputation continued to reach all corners of Greece, and not before long, she was courted by far too many illustrious noble men, so much so that Tyndareus was worried that fighting would break out amongst them. Menelaus wanted her, but so did many, many others, including Odysseus and other future generals of the Trojan War, such as Diomedes, Ajax, Philoctetes, and Patrocles. Odysseus was especially clever, and surmised that the situation with Helen was hopeless. He had taken a likening towards a niece of Tyndareus anyways, whose name was Penelope. He therefore went to Tyndareus with the offer that if he promised her hand in marriage, he would provide him with a solution to prevent fighting amongst all the Greek heroes. Tyndareus, of course, was happy to comply, and so Odysseus told him to make them all swear an oath, the famous oath of Tyndareus, whereby they pledged to respect his choice for Helen's mate, and not to take her from him, or to let anyone else do so as well. The heroes willingly pledged this oath, as each believed that he would be the one to win Helen anyway. However, they had no idea how much this oath would cost them. Afterwards, Tyndareus decided to offer his daughter in marriage to Menelaus. Agamemnon too married Helen's half-sister, Clytemnestra. Both were possibly tokens of their goodwill and allegiance. Menelaus had a daughter named Hermione, and when Tyndareus lost his two sons, Castor and Pollux, he made Menelaus the heir to his throne at Sparta. Castor and Pollux, also called Polydeuces, were the two brothers, together known as the Dioscori, meaning the ideal young men of Zeus. In Latin, they are known as the Gemini. Later, the two brothers found themselves in a feud with their two cousins, Idas and Lynceus, over the love of two women. As a result, the Dioscori decided to free their cousins' cattle out of petty revenge. The cousins, though, witnessed them doing it, so the two sides came to blows, resulting in the mortal Castor being killed. Pollux was so deeply saddened by his brother's death, and he didn't wish to live alone without him, so when he asked his father Zeus to either let him go to the underworld with his brother, or to let his brother live, Zeus decided to make a compromise. Both brothers would be together, but they would share immortality, meaning that they would alternate between being in the underworld and being on Mount Olympus. 
And so they are immortal and immortal. They die and then they come back to life again. As emblems of immortality and death, the Dioscori, like Heracles, were said to have been initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries. Because of this, they were thought of as a sort of savior gods. They are shown with sparks around their heads to represent the sparks that are seen on the mast of a ship during lightning or thunderstorms. Sailors took this as a sign of hope that the gods were with them, and these gods would have been the Dioscori brothers. Not forgetting about Theseus and Pirithous, when they arrived in the underworld, presumably already knowing what their intentions were, Persephone invited them to sit down in chairs that caused them to forget everything, including how to even get up. They were stuck there for an unknown amount of time until a grandson of Perseus happened to be in the underworld as a living mortal while on a quest to drag Cerberus up into the sunlight. He was the greatest of the Greek heroes and was so important to the ancient Greek psyche that he gets an entire episode all to himself. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 47, Heracles, From Zero to Hero. (laughs) 